We are into week two of our first um, Bible, the book series that we're going to go through. We're going through Colossians, and um, we just got finished with our Is Christianity Relevant series. And so this is week two of Colossians, um, and as the screen says, um, our theme for this book is all of Christ in all of life. And tonight, we get to look at like the, the second little section of the book of Colossians, and it's a really important text because it's going to be kind of a primer for the rest of the book in the tone that, that, that Paul's setting in the context that he's talking to and um, the purpose behind what he's saying. Um, so I'd like to start by just asking you if you've noticed um, the, the way that people talk about religion um, today, particularly on a college campus um, or just in Missoula in general, um, the, way that pe- the way that you talk about religion with your friends, the way they talk about it with you, the way you talk about faith and spirituality, um, there's this general understanding, this generally accepted understanding of relativism. Um, and relativism is just a word that basically communicates this idea that truth is, is, is based on the perspective of the one hearing, the one believing, the one thinking. And so whatever you're talking about, whether it's morality, whether it's spirituality, whether it's faith or truth, relativism basically means that whatever topic you're talking about, um, it's different for each person because each person has a different perspective. And so tonight, um, what we're going to look at is kind of that idea in this context of the book of Colossians. Um, And I'd like to just type, this this idea is important, and in certain ways, it's it's true. In certain ways, it's absolutely true. it's fitting that I'm using a illustration about food considering the way that I feel right now, but um, I love, like I adore the Doritos Locos Tacos at Taco Bell. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh. It's, a, it's, it's a hard shell taco and the shell's made out of Doritos. Like manna from heaven, right? It is God's gift to the human taste buds. But I love it. Add some Diablo sauce, I'm all in. My wife hates them, and she's never even tried it. The very idea of it just makes her nauseous, like this idea of Taco Bell and food in general make her (laughs) nauseous. But the point is, um, a silly illustration to just point out that we're different, right? Some of us are tall, some of us are small, so we see the world in a literally different way. We have different taste buds. We're different people. We have different genes. Um, in many ways, we're different, particularly in that, that, that realm of taste, art, music, and entertainment. We all have tastes and desires and affections for these things. And um, we're all different. And on a corporate level, we're different. We're different from one another. But even on an individual level, I am different now than I was five years ago, right? I hated asparagus my whole life. I use food. I love food. I hated asparagus my whole life. One of my favorite vegetables now is roasted asparagus with olive oil and salt and pepper. The best. Wow, I should not be talking about food right now. Um, And the point is, is we're different corporately from each other, and we're different from how we were before and how we will be in the future. So there's that idea of relativity, relativity, absolutely, relativism, not relativity, that's science. Relativism absolutely applies to certain areas of our life. But what is true regarding our taste buds and what's true regarding our affections for music and entertainment has culturally been applied to spirituality, it's been applied to religion, and it's been applied to this idea of truth. Um, our taste buds have become a metaphor for how we view and understand the nature of truth and spirituality and religion. 
And to be fair to that perspective, um, it's not just what tastes good or what we like that people subscribe to in terms of religion or in terms of, of faith. Often it's what makes people feel good. It's what make, what's helpful to people. Um, it is um, not just based on the, 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 the superficial what we like and dislike, but also the idea of what's helpful, the idea of what feels good, what seems right um, for a variety of reasons. And so this idea of relativism, uh, it, it's been around for a long time. Actually, about 500 years before the book of Colossians, there's this guy, um, I'm going to butcher, I don't, I'm not going to say his name right. It's Protagoras, Protagoras, some Greek philosopher. Um, <laughs> thank you. His, uh, <laughs> so Protagoras, um, he he wrote this work, and it was simply titled Truth, just the word truth. And in it, he says this, um, man is the measure of all things, of the things which are, that they are, and of the things which are not, they are not. And this last sentence is kind of the key to, what, to, to this idea of relativism. Things are for every man what they seem to him to be. This is 500 years before the book of Colossians. And um, at this time when he wrote this, this guy, uh, it is actually, uh, Plato actually kind of deconstructed this. And so it really didn't get a lot of traction in that time. But um, uh, what, what, what's happening in the book of Colossians is while it didn't gain a lot of formal attraction until like the 17, 1800s, um, in, a, in a low key way, um, this, sorry, that was silly. In a low key way, um, this idea of relativism um, uh, 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 infiltrated the way um, people thought about religion and faith. And um, this book, Colossians, the letter of Colossians, is um, really just a response to some really poor theology, um, some really jacked up ideas about who God is and what God's like and who Jesus is and what he did. Um, and what Paul is addressing here is this bastardized version of relativism, which is called religious syncretism. We're going to use some big words tonight, yeah? So, so stick with me. Religious syncretism basically just means it's a blending or mixing of truth to create this new amorphous kind of idea of faith and spirituality. And so um, you, you, in the Colossian church's sense, what Paul is writing to, they start with the Christian faith and they take some of this Eastern mysticism, they take some of the Greek philosophers and they, they, they piece it together in a way that creates this own little like, like idea of 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 religion, of faith. Um, and so when we talk about religious syncretism, that's the idea we're talking about, taking pieces of other ideas and other, true, or other religions and philosophies um, and creating this, this new unique thing. Um, it doesn't just have to be religion either or faith. Um, it can be our own sensibilities. It can be your own desires, what feels right to you, as we talked about earlier, what feels right, what seems right, what's reasonable, what's logical. Um, and so the religious syncretism is just the blending, the mixing of various other ideas to create this new, um, larger idea. Um, and yet, despite this, this idea of religious syncretism infiltrating the Colossian church, um, we know, looking at this letter, that there was a church in Colossae, and that this church had Christians in it, and that there were faithful men and women of God living and serving and loving Jesus in this church. Um, looking back to what Tyler read um, and did last week, you can see in the uh, verse three through five a, we thank, we always thank God. It's not going to be up on the screen, sorry. Um, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so there's definitely a a faithful, gospel-loving center at this church. 
Um, but um, despite that, there was this, this presence of all of these other competing ideas um, that started to, to, to gain some traction inside of the Colossian church. And so our text tonight, what we're looking at tonight, verses 9 through 14, um, it's going to press on the vital importance of believing rightly about the gospel, of understanding and knowing who Jesus is, because that is the core, that is the center of everything that Christianity is. And that's what Paul's going to address tonight. Um, and so all of that relativism, all the, the background to the Colossian church, it's really important for us, um, not just to understand the text, but it's really important for us because we face very similar circumstances today in terms of relativism, in terms of people having their own ideas of what's right and wrong, what, what's true and what's not, and about religion and faith and spirituality. And so um, it's important for us not just to understand the context here and understand the text, but it's important for us because it's, it's, it's eerily similar to what we face today. Um, and so, um, a good, actually, a good example of this religious syncretism today uh, is the, uh, the prosperity gospel. And we, uh, I, I mean, I, I talk about that a lot in a negative way because it's so harmful to the Christian faith. But the point is, is the prosperity gospel, if you don't know what it is, it's just this, this idea, um, it's, it's it's the Christian, it's the Christian faith taken and 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 um, and perverted in such a way, where God ceases to be God and we become God, and God exists to serve us. And so, if you if you if you're a good person, if you love people, you'll you'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Basically, is the tenets of it: healthy, health, wealth, and and, and happiness. And the 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 um, the point of that to illustrate this idea of religious syncretism is that the Christian faith was combined with the American dream, and the idea of prosperity. The idea of, of growing a, a family legacy, a wealth legacy, getting a good job, having a good family, having a good life. Religious syncretism in our context is a good example of that is this idea of the prosperity gospel with the American dream and Christianity being kind of mixed together in this amorphous way. Um, and so, as I, as I um, stated, this book in a major way, um, this letter is a response to um, that blending of religions in, in Colossae. Um, and tonight we get a couple of verses that it, we're going to kind of set the stage for how Paul's going to respond to that in the rest of the book. Um, and our big idea tonight, the big idea we want to look at and we, we really want to repeat and hammer in is this. Um, the greatest influence on who you are and how you live is what you believe about Jesus. The greatest influence on who you are and how you live is the reality, the truth surrounding Jesus. And so let's read our text for tonight. It's gonna to be Colossians 1, 9 through 14, what Brad read earlier. And then I'm gonna pray and we're gonna dive a little bit into the text. Um, and so Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all, all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing good fruit in every work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let's pray. Um, Father God, uh, we are 
we're grateful for um, the freedom and the, the liberty to meet in a room on a, on a secular campus and worship you and pray to you and study your truth, God. I pray that tonight as we dive into that idea of truth, that idea of, of, of the, 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 the transcendent, objective truth of Jesus, that God, you would, you would, you would you mold our hearts to be uh, receptive and, um, and, and stir an affection within us for the truth of Jesus, Father. Um, yeah, Father, I just pray that we would, we would know more about you so that we can live more fully for your glory um, uh, in this life, Father. Yeah, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Um, all right, so looking at these first two verses, let's look at these first two verses, uh, verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 1. Uh, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so looking at these two verses, we see a specific thing that Paul's trying to get at. Right, we see a specific purpose behind what Paul's trying to get at. And, and you see it um, right here in verse, um, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And so what this is, is this is Paul holding in tension that, that idea of the purpose behind humanity, the purpose of our existence, the purpose of what we do, and that is to glorify God. Isaiah 43 describes our, our mere existence. We exist to glorify God. And um, that's what Paul is holding here is, is this idea that everything he says in these verses is kind of tied to that, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So as, kind of tying everything together. But also in these two verses, um, he's getting at two specific ways in which we do that. Um, and two specific ways in which he, he's, he's asking them, he's imploring them, he's actually praying to God for their sake that they, would, that they would glorify him. And these two ways are one, we see at the very beginning, to increase in the knowledge of God, to, to, to increase in their knowledge of God, and two, that they would bear fruit in good works to increase in the knowledge of God and to bear fruit in good works. These are the two ways in which Paul is describing how you can glorify God, particularly to the church. And um, um, so Paul opened this letter previously by, by praising God for their faith and their love for people. And here, these verses right here, verses 9 and 10, is kind of where he first pushes them a little, where he first is, is pushing on something that needs to change or, or that he's trying to correct or that he's trying to, to grow in them. Previous, it's, it's, it's him thanking God for them, encouraging them. And so this is where Paul starts to press on them. And um, what he says is um, the, first, the first of those two um, in verse nine, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Um, so throughout the Bible, we see this idea of God's will. Okay, we see this idea of, of what the will of God is and what it means. And many of us, when we hear God's will, we probably carry some baggage with us with, with that idea um, as we try and reconcile or figure out what that kind of means as we hear it. Um, but I, I do absolutely believe Paul has a specific purpose in mind with, this, with that phrase. Knowledge of the will of God. And, and, and for the purpose in the context of this passage, um, we, can, we can look back at actually Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, um, how Paul opens that letter. Um, he says, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him, blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. Now look back at Galatians 1, verse 3 and 4. Um, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So um, Paul also opens all of his letters by thanking God for their faith, by 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 excuse me, by giving thanks to God for, for their salvation. And um, there's always this gratitude to God for what the people are. And so throughout the Bible, we see this idea of the salvation of the church being God's will. And specifically, as we read in those two verses, the idea of God's will, the knowledge of the will of God, specifically in this context, we're talking about the, the will of God realized through Christ. That is the will of God to send his son Jesus to live and to die for us and to redeem us. And so um, uh, in these first two verses tonight, Paul, what, he, what he's doing is he's longing for these, these people of Colossae to, to know more deeply, to cherish more deeply the will of God in Christ. That amidst this cultural context of of all of these like religious inputs that, that what would be preeminent and that would be primary is who Jesus is. And um, the, uh, so amidst all this cultural context, they would be reminded of that ultimate purpose. Um, as he said, to, to, so as to walk in a manner fully pleasing to the Lord, to glorify God in the primary ways in which we do this is by knowing Jesus the primary way in by which we glorify God is by knowing and cherishing and loving the gospel of Jesus. And um, yeah. So by understanding with wisdom and clarity who Jesus is, um, we, can, uh, we can know the intimate riches of Jesus that we might respond by living a more pleasing life to God, bearing fruit in every good work, as he says, um, and, and working to be kind and loving, working for justice and peace and all of these, these, these good things that God calls us to, um, but never are the ends or the purposes loving your neighbor or seeking justice or carrying out peace. The end is never... Um, that, that is never the end. It's never found in the good works. The end is found in glorifying God through them because of what is behind them, knowledge and understanding of the will of God through Jesus. And so um, there's just this phrase I think might be helpful. In order to live rightly, we must believe rightly. In order to live rightly, we must believe rightly. Um, Paul says, believe, think, and know rightly so that you might glorify God by living a more faithful and God-glorifying life full of good works, as verse 10 says. Um, but as we, we talked a little bit earlier about that idea of relativism, believing rightly has a lot of baggage and probably isn't responded to well on a college campus, right? That idea of believing rightly. 
because relativism is so popular, because that idea of what's true for you isn't true for me is so popular. Um, and so many people have so many different ideas about what is right and wrong, what is true and not true, what is religion, what is spirituality, and what is faith. Um, specifically, as we look at morality, as we look at right and wrong, um, a, a good example of this is, is politics, all right? Politics are, um, you don't talk about them, right, in like this kind of context, but you have Democrats, you have Republicans, you have independents, you have libertarians, you have the green, you have all these different parties, and every single, I wouldn't say every single, most people within those parties have a desire to do what is right and to rule well, to govern well, because they believe that what they're doing is for the betterment of the people they're governing. That's fair? That's absolutely fair. People that, the, the, they, they wouldn't be... That's not fair. So some people may have uh, 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 not so savory ideas or savory motivations for going into politics, but most believe that they're making the world a better place, that their ideas, that their platform is ultimately helpful to humanity. Um, and uh, let's use another illustration and be super controversial, and let's talk about abortion. Um, I, I, I would never keep a secret about being pro-life. I am... Um, Biblically, theologically, even scientifically, um, I believe that a, a baby in utero is a person. And um, I believe that, that, that the abortion is an epidemic and it should um, absolutely be illegal. Yet, there are many, I know many pro-choice people, and they believe what they believe is right. They believe that, that the, the autonomy and the liberty of a woman is more important than the life of the child, or that the child isn't a child at all. They believe that, this, that the historical oppression of women and culture has led to this societal misogyny, and illegalizing abortion is just another way in which oppression and marginalization takes place. And so you see, there's, you, have, you have these two opposing views. Most people in each camp believe that what they believe is right. Same goes for politics, same goes for justice, same goes for uh, parenting and, and relationships. Almost everywhere in life, you'll see two opposing point of views, both of which with, held with sincerity, believing that what they believe is right and good. Um, Proverbs 14, 12 is a good verse to speak to that. And what it says is, there is a way which seems right to man, right to man but in the end, is the way to death. There is a way which seems right to man, but in the end is the way to death. See, the way we view right and wrong, culturally, uh, is almost entirely dictated by what seems right. Based on our circumstances, based on how you were raised, based upon how you've suffered in life, based upon the ways you find it, found joy, based upon where you found happiness, our understanding of what is right is based on what seems good and has become something entirely subjective. I used to use this phrase all the time, I feel like. Um, I used to use it like, I feel like the, uh, the Broncos defense will destroy the Seahawks in the Super Bowl, and they, they didn't. But I used to use that phrase for everything, from sports to how the, the voice contestant I thought was the best to um, what I thought was right and wrong to what I thought and believed about God and the gospel. I feel like. 
to me, that, that phrase neuters any kind of objectivity. But make no mistake, and Paul does it in our text, that there is um, a truth that transcends any way you or I feel. There is a truth that exists beyond what seems right. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The most important piece of who you are, the most transformative truth that shapes your life is Jesus. Knowing in all spiritual wisdom and understanding the person of work in Jesus, it determines and dictates what is truly good and right and what is truly offensive to the God that he reconciled us to. There is a transcendent, objective, glorious, wonderful truth, and now that truth is found in the person and work of Jesus. Read with me. Um, Colossians 11, uh, oh, excuse me, Colossians 1, 11 through 14. Um, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance um, of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This knowledge, this truth that shapes us, this understanding that strengthens and brings us joy um, begins with the inheritance we have in Jesus. It begins with our reconciliation to God through Jesus. It begins with our redemption and our forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus. See, these people were so infected with these various traditions and, and religious and cultural ideas and contexts that they began to neglect the prominence and the importance of who Jesus is and what he's done. And what Paul does throughout the letter is he's trying to strip back all of that junk out of their faith, out of their, their excuse me, out of their faith, and he's trying to build this, this massive, unwavering pillar of truth, all of which is the truth of Jesus. And the, I said bringing some more big words, the big word for this um, is, is Christology. The study and the belief and the knowledge and the understanding of who Jesus is, Christology. And contained in this book is Paul, some of Paul's highest Christology. That is some of the most... Um, excuse me, some of the most uh, cosmic, some of the most uh, mysterious, some of the most powerful, most glorious language surrounding Jesus that Paul writes is in this book. And there's a purpose for that because these people had lost the centrality and the prominence and the glory of Jesus. And so what Paul's doing is he's, he's, he's building a pillar from which that, that doesn't shake, that doesn't move, that will last a lifetime. And um, he does this in order to lay in our souls a bedrock of truth, truth, actual truth, upon which we can begin to understand what the Christian life looks like because the Christian life must always begin 
with the knowledge of the will of God realized in Christ Jesus. The greatest influence on who you are and how you live is what you believe about Jesus. Paul knows this throughout this letter. Paul teaches this, and he's imploring and encouraging us to know and understand the reality of who Jesus is. Um, and in those verses, so in those verses is uh, those 11 through 12, rather, through 14, is where we start with Jesus. This is where Paul starts as he starts to dive into some of this deep, rich language about the reality of Jesus. He starts in verse, um, in verse 12. He says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved son. We were blind and now we see. We were dead and now we're alive. Um, that idea of darkness, what better way to describe the current political climate than, than a bunch of monkeys blundering down in the dark? A bunch of fools just wandering around with their eyes closed. How, what a more fitting way to describe that idea of relativism as even, even a proponent of it would describe themselves as not having the complete truth, blindly just believing and, and trying to figure it out without any real objective place to start. What better way to describe that than darkness? And that darkness, the darkness of the way which seems right to man, as Proverbs says, is the darkness from which we've been delivered. We've been delivered to the kingdom of Jesus where there is light it says in verse 11, the, um, or rather verse 12, um, the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. We see there's clarity. There is an objective, glorious, ethic Jesus. We talk about the kingdom ethic at church now in the book of Matthew. The kingdom ethic is Jesus. There's clarity. There's objectivity. Um, Next place we can go with that, that idea of holding Jesus central, building more truth around who Jesus is, is, is verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, we have redemption. We've been reconciled to God. Around here, you stick around, you'll hear a lot, the phrase, what's our biggest problem? What's our biggest problem? Our biggest problem is our separation from God. You hear it a lot. The reason our separation is, or separation from God is our biggest problem is that that is the only problem in life that stretches into eternity. It's the only problem in life that has these cosmic, eternal, spiritual consequences. So your biggest problem is your separation from God. And what this verse says is we have redemption, we have reconciliation, we have forgiveness. We have returned to the favor of God. That is what Jesus did for us. We see our greatest problem rectified in these verses and, and that begins to shape in a more glorious way how we see Jesus. Um, we see reconciliation and redemption and it's not by our effort, right? It's not, it's not by our effort, but it's by, it's, it's by God's will. As we said, the will of God realized in Christ Jesus. Um, we see re forgiveness for a rebellion, Jesus nailing it to the cross, um, and this, uh, 
you have, so there's that idea of, of, um, of high Christology, what we described earlier. Uh, a really, it just means a really high view of who Jesus is. It means you're not putting Jesus in a box. This is what Jesus is, and this is all Jesus is. That's a really low idea of who Jesus is. That's a low Christology. What, what, what Paul presents here in this book is a very, very high Christology. And what he's, he's presenting that high Christology so as to combat the bastardized relativism they existed in, which is helpful for us because we exist in a very prominent and obvious relativism. So you see, your life, your life, the choices you make, the things you care about, the major you choose, the person you marry, your life is a response to something. You live your life out of a response to something. Some of us respond to our desires. Um, desires for comfort is very popular. I want a good job. I need, I need a lot of money, so I need to pick a major that has uh, a, a good uh, job market that's going to guarantee me that I have a job. Not only is that, but it's going to pay well enough where I don't have to worry about finances at all during my life. I'm going to have a comfortable life. So that idea of your desire for comfort drives excuse me, drives the decisions you make. Um, desires for experience, for joy is popular. Um, that idea of living your, to, 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 to your maximum joy in the moment, living in the moment, fun at any cost, happiness and joy at any cost. Um, some people live life in response to their conscience, in response to that idea, those amorphous ideas of what is right and wrong. People try and rectify the things they see wrong in culture, wrong in the world, and, and they try and make it right. And so they're living out of a response to their conscience or response to the world. And so all of the choices you make, the affections that you have, um, it's all a response to something. And Paul in our text here gets at that idea by, by excuse me, not necessarily what the response is. It's not necessarily, Paul's not after what your response is, but what it is you're responding to. Because before he gets after what you do in response, he's getting after what it is you're responding to, what it is that's shaping how you think, what it is that informs your ideas of justice and mercy and peace, what it is that motivates you, what it is that drives you, what it is that moves you. That's what Paul is getting after here. And what you respond to will inevitably shape how you respond. If what you're responding to is good and glorious, it's going to change your response as if what you're responding to is something temporary or something fickle. And personally, as I read and as I studied this passage, I was overwhelmingly convicted because I was that guy that chased joy. I still do in many ways. I chased joy in the moment. I live for experience. I live to, to, to have maximize my happiness and joy. And too often, my life is lived out of a response to that desire. My life is lived out of a response to want and desire and to need joy and happiness. Uh, but check this out, though. This is really cool. Um, I chase joy, right? That's my, that's my probably biggest um, 
desire idol, whatever you want to call it, I chase joy. Far too often I live in response to my joy stimuli. Um, And I long to have experiences. I long to make decisions that maximize my joy, my happiness. And the irony of that is that by seeking joy, by seeking happiness in the moment, outside of Jesus, I'm actually subverting that which brings the ultimate and lasting joy, which is Christ Jesus. When Think back to when Jesus was born and um, an angel appeared to the wise men. And what did the angel say? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Um, uh, Isaiah 12 says that our pinnacle of joy, that my song is your salvation. My strength, my song is your salvation. The pinnacle of joy, as it relates to me, is found in the salvation of Jesus. And so I know that nothing will satisfy my desire for joy more than surrendering that desire to Jesus. And rather than responding to that desire, I'm responding to the glorious and wonderful and mighty work that Jesus did to save me and reconcile me back to God. And that is ultimately a more full and complete joy. So let me ask you this question. What is it in you or in your life that you're responding to. If what drives you and motivates you, if what moves you is something other than Jesus and the gospel, then there will be an inevitable disorder and inevitable darkness. The death of that relativism is a very high view of Jesus, is a a robust, Bust understanding of the person and the, the God, Jesus. And we're going to get into so much of that in this book. See, killing our tendency to compromise truth begins with a bedrock of gospel truth that trusts in the reality of who Jesus is. And just like the Colossian church in a, in a low-key way operated with these relativistic tendencies, so do we, Um, We blend, perhaps it's not other religions, perhaps it's not even philosophy, but it's our desires with our faith. We blend what we want and what we need and what we desire, maybe even our cultural sensibilities, we blend it with our faith. Um, And it may not be obvious, but I would bet that most of us in here have ways in which something is attached to the gospel, something is attached to Jesus, something is attached to your faith that does not belong there. And as Paul is yearning for them to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God realized in Christ Jesus, and he's stripping away all of that muck, all of that garbage, we need to examine ourselves and look at the ways in which we have been influenced and infiltrated and infected by things other than the gospel of Jesus as our primary source for understanding who God is. So I would just encourage you to examine where Jesus is not your foundation. Examine if something motivates you other than the salvation that God brought you. 
Examine where your desires have polluted the ways you view spirituality and faith and return to the bottomless well and beautiful and perfect and glorious and infinite knowledge of the will of God realized in Christ Jesus. Because the greatest influence on who you are and how you live is what you believe about Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are, um, we are repentant sinners that have in so many ways um, perverted your truth. We have perverted the gospel. We have rejected Jesus and we have rejected you in, in so many ways. Um, so Father, I pray as Paul was longing for, excuse me, for this church to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is, Father, I pray that we would yearn and long to know more about who Jesus is, what he's done, and the depths and the riches and the glories of who he is, Father. I pray that what sustains us, what motivates us, what drives us would be the gospel of Jesus. Father, I thank you for this evening. We thank you that we could open our Bibles and dive into this, Father. I pray that we would be affected by your gospel, and that we would be affected by your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.